Welcome to the Thoughtful Gamer Podcast, episode number 36. Today we are talking about Ameritrash games. Here with me, but not really because we're all in separate locations, is Orion. Hello. And Bubba. Hello. We are separated by, what, thousands of miles. Lots and lots of miles. Thousands of miles. The wonders of technology. Kilometers on this side of the pond. (laughs) Even more thousands of kilometers. (laughs) than miles <laughs> roughly 30 something percent more <laughs> yeah wait have you been on a podcast though since you went over there yeah oh. i was on the chill cast too the chill casting or whatever you called it the, the chill casting okay yeah that never, that never i don't mind, think you've though. actually wait you missed one i don't think i missed any did i yeah distance cannot separate us orion nope the magic of the internet just keep roping you back in. Hopefully this time you don't turn into a robot. Yeah, we'll see. We will see. So, like I said, we're talking about Ameritrash games, which I'm surprised we haven't discussed before. I guess we haven't gone into broader genres that much, but... We've talked about a lot of these games as part of other <laughs> collections, um, but sure. not as the category of Ameritrash. Yeah, And when I went back and did a bit of research to kind of refresh my memory of kind of the origins of the phrase Ameritrash, and then I started trying to compile a list of games that we we play that could be called Ameritrash, I've come to the conclusion that it's, it's a very vague category. Like, we're at the point now, any game in the last 10 years or so isn't strictly Ameritrash. Because... Part of, I'm jumping ahead a bit, but part of how we define Ameritrash games are certain attributes of games that we as modern board gamers have determined are not ideal game mechanisms. And so a lot of what we would call Ameritrash games today borrow, replace those with what we would call Euro mechanisms. So it's all a big mess in this podcast is probably meaningless, but let's talk about Ameritrash games. I, I am curious, though. Did you go and, like, Google that term, like, an hour ago? Yeah, I did. And, I did and like, what a kind minimal... of games came up? Oh, I, I was looking more historically, like, the origins. Okay. All right. Because when I was brought into the hobby, that sounds like I was, like, kidnapped or something. When I learned about the, the modern board gaming hobby, it was from the pitch of, hey, there's these new kinds of board games that aren't like the board games you know, like Monopoly and Sorry. They actually involve thinking and are balanced and don't have a lot of luck, and they're called Euro games. And so I, from the beginning of getting into this hobby, I always put Ameritrash games in the bucket of games, or rather the other way around from what I just said there, I put games like Monopoly and Sorry in the bucket of Ameritrash games, but I don't think that's necessarily accurate. Those are just kind of luck games. Well, Monopoly's its own thing. And aside from roll and write, or roll and move, rather, it has, you know, auctioning we see in a lot of Euro games. But a game like Sorry, that's essentially just completely luck. Like, that's more along the lineage of gambling games than what we would call Ameritrash, I think. I think Ameritrash, from what I understand, has its origins more in war games, which ironically was started by a Brit, H.G. Wells, the novelist. 
who created the first war game, I believe in 1913 or something like that, or 1912. There, there apparently had been toy soldiers and like modeling was a thing before then. And then he's like, Hey, let's write up some rules to play with them, which is a bit of interesting board gaming history, but war games didn't really pick up until about the sixties or seventies is when they really got popular with the, the rise of, of companies like Avalon Hill. And then, so I would say Ameritrash, as we understand it today, has its roots more in war games and narrative games, which themselves have their roots in war gaming, because D&D was initially a rule set for a miniatures, for a line of miniatures. It was originally trying to be a war game, and then the more narrative parts of it kind of got added on. As I understand it, the very first version of D&D was not as narrative as we would think of when we hear D&D today. It was a little bit more structured and and combat oriented. But then obviously role playing has kind of made its own genre, but I think from those two branches is how we can kind of contextualize Ameritrash games today is the narrative aspects that we see in role playing games and the dice rolling combat heavy games that we see in early war games does that make sense to you guys for the most part i think if i had to if i had to define ameritrash games i think i would probably certainly include the word combat in there as far as i feel like every ameritrash game i've played has some form of combat combat in it maybe maybe not necessarily player elimination because you can you can do combat in many different ways. Oh, and I should I should clarify, luck-based combat. Sure. And then as far as narrative, I think the games evolved into, honestly, less and less narrative as you went forward. Like, Risk, to me, is an, uh, uh, an Ameritrash game, and it's got pretty much no narrative whatsoever in it. But I think, I think there's a huge scale on that, too. Well... Narrative is an interesting one. You can have narrative or you can have like specific agency where, which is where you get more of it in war gaming where, you know, risk is, is an abstracted example, but in a war game that's covering a specific battle, it's going to be highlighting like the specific unit names and stuff like that to give you a better sense of your agency historically, which is an important aspect of it. That's not necessarily narrative, but kind of. It's interesting because Euro games and Ameritrash games are often defined relative to each other. So a Euro game is often defined as something that has no player elimination and less luck or no luck and indirect conflict instead of direct conflict. So those are the three categories that I typically hear is that Ameritrash games would have would be luck player elimination and, and direct conflict player elimination like you said doesn't necessarily have to be there but is kind of an important part of many older ameritrash games i think that's one of the things where as we've gotten in the last 10 15 years people are like yeah that's just not a great mechanism so we'll phase it out of otherwise ameritrashy games uh in favor of something else while keeping things like direct conflict because that's to most people, that's not necessarily a bad thing, although there are some inherent obstacles when you're making anything with direct conflict. But with anything we're talking about with broad categorizations like this, it's hard to pinpoint anything in particular. We're, we're going to be talking in terms, especially with 
more recent games in terms of trends or feelings rather than very specific definitions. I think another characteristic that you could throw in there that isn't maybe limited to Ameritrash games would be politics and the social dynamics of the game, mainly because when you have direct conflict, if I attack you instead of attacking Bubba, he gets stronger relative to us. And so that, I don't know, I think that's another characteristic that will show up in a lot of these games. Yeah, which is interesting because then you have, on the other side of things, you have Euro games that are embracing that a little bit more or having the traditional Euro game would be defined as little to no even indirect conflict. But I think we see with a lot of modern, more modern Euro games, there's more indirect conflict, which starts to bring in that politicking a bit more. Because like, you could have an argument in Agricola or archipelago as heated as any argument in risk over who to essentially attack even if it's not direct like i kill your troops it's instead i take your spot the politicking is a part of any kind of conflict the point being that it's another area where the the two genres have kind of started to merge together and and that's an interesting point because ameritrash tends to have such well got trash in the name (laughs) right i was gonna say that's such a negative connotation (laughs) it does it truly does but like with us defining it that if you will why why do we think it's got such a negative connotation over time and everybody views these as such terrible games i mean we can point i don't think that's true though you don't think so You, you don't think that like ameritrash gets gets a bad rap no i think in the history, the short history of modern board games, if the the term Ameritrash very quickly became accepted as just a genre, like it's just something certain people like. And f- I mean, the origins of it, ironically, are from the phrase Euro Trash, which was a a term mostly used in the '90s, I think. It, it, it's like the European version. It, it's like calling someone a hipster. Like, yeah, there could be some derision with it, but it's also just a categorization or like a fashion trend or a stylistic trend or a lifestyle trend. And okay. so someone just ported that term and said, hey, this is just Ameritrash. And then I think people who like Ameritrashy games were like, yeah, that, that sounds about right. Because I mean, like when a game, when a game, has more luck, which is probably the predominantly kind of the most stable through line in terms of attributes for Meritrash games is luck. Like it's less elegant than a game with little or no luck. It is a bit more trashy. And I think people recognize that, but it doesn't have to be a bad thing. It's just, it's not as elegant or streamlined or yeah, I guess those are the words I would use. It's got a bit more chaos to it. I don't think it's necessarily a point of derision. And maybe to some people, maybe to the hardcore Euro players, but they're getting phased out because there are so few hardcore Euro games anymore. Everything's been co-opted and and borrowed from by everything else. At least that's how I look at it. I know that on the Dice Tower, they use the the term Amerithrash, which I think is just a silly, pointless battle. They should stop. (laughs) Just call it Ameritrash. It's fine. (laughs) So I think it would be fun to like identify the qualities of an ameritrash game and really like just dive into like what we don't do or don't like about each one 
maybe give an example of a, an Ameritrash game with each one. Yeah, let's let's try to build some consensus first, and then we can get into some points of conflict, i.e. Eldritch Horror. Oh, boy. <laughs> but no, I think there's some, there, there are a good number we, we all dislike and a good number we all like, I think. So, do you want to start with the dislikes or the likes? I, I think likes are a good place start to start. With, start with start with the likes. Want to make this a happy one, a happy podcast? All right. Yeah. We all love Twilight Imperium. I think that's kind of the first place we got to go to for Ameritrash, although it does borrow Euro mechanisms, but it's got lots of pieces. It's got dice-based combat. It's got technically player elimination. You can eliminate people. Obviously, lots of direct conflict. It's got tons of narrative. It's got the potential for very easy role-playing because there's so much lore and background and just chrome, as the war gamers call it. That's a phrase I've picked up. Stuff like that. Stuff like the like the little bits that don't actually affect gameplay but are just provide a bit more complication or narrative they call chrome. Hmm. So I think we all love Twilight Imperium. What is it about Twilight Imperium that sidesteps it's hard to do this without being without without framing it in terms of a comparison against worse games. What does it do that sidesteps some of the problems you would see with the Maritrash games? So so for instance the politicking. Like there's certainly politicking in Twilight Imperium. In fact that's I, what I would argue is the core gameplay me- mechanism if you reduce it down. But how does it do that well? I think that's one of the biggest keys to it in that it reduces its combat system down so much to almost a point where it truly doesn't even matter how good or bad your luck is in the combat combat. Yes, it, it, it matters to an extent, but more times than not, uh, you go into a combat knowing who's going to win, who's going to lose. It's just a matter of, all right, maybe I lose this cruiser, this combat, and maybe I don't if I rolled a little better. So it's not so much that you're playing the game to get to this combat and then you're you're relying on the dice or cards or what what have you to decide who wins it's more you're playing this game to be politicky to have arguments and discussions with others and the luck based combat is just this side thing that's that's that feels really nice honestly about the game while you're in it yeah that's a good point the combat I mean, you can get severely lucky or unlucky rolls, but it's typically, you have a decent idea of your odds going in. I think a key part of good Ameritrash design is having clear, not necessarily clear, but fair feeling probabilities. So like, you can go into a battle in Twilight Imperium and kind of know, okay, I'm more likely than not to win this fight. And like you said, it's a matter of, how much I'm going to lose along the way. Or you may think, if I do lose this fight, it'd be because of some bad luck here. But so, but it's still a risk you're evaluating. And having that on the table, that kind of probabilistic decision-making, I think is kind of a key aspect of games that have that post-decision luck. So like a, like a dice battle. I think another key of Twilight Imperium specifically is that it's long enough that any short-term RNG imbalance kind of gets smoothed out over the course of the game because maybe you have a couple really bad fights early, but you're 
probably going to have a couple above average fights later. And while that affects your position on the board, uh, you can usually make up for that in politicking. And because you have enough time, you can recover from a bad luck outcome. Maybe not 10 bad luck outcomes, but you can recover from a couple to the extent that you still feel like you're playing the game rather than it happening to you. That's a really good point. And I think that's unique to Twilight Imperium. And I think it's also a big obstacle if you're trying to make that kind of game, that kind of big 4X or combat heavy game that you want to be shorter is that you take away the rebuilding segments of the game. So there's like the first contact conflicts. And if someone gets really smashed down in a in a shorter game, it's hard not for them to be effectively eliminated at, at that point. But we've seen in games of Twilight Imperium where someone gets hit really early, like Bubba in his the first game. Yeah, game. The game with Bubba, yeah. And then ends up winning the game because he's able to rebuild. Now, obviously, that's dependent on the other players going, okay, he's not really a threat anymore, so I shift my focus to my other border. But that's where the incentives lie anyway, unless you're trying to like wipe him out and then take over his territory, which, you know, in Twilight Imperium could happen, but is a costly endeavor, time cost mostly, or action and, and cost. Politi- and political capital. Right, yeah, because, because then, then, then you're all the eyes shift towards you. And, yeah, and you become the easy target. Right. So, yeah, that's, I'm saying thoughts I hadn't really said out loud before, but that rebuilding time in Twilight Imperium is so important to the success of that game. Yeah, I think if if TI was limited to like four rounds, it would not be as good. Right. And then if you compare it to like even Eclipse, which is still not a short game, it's what, four to six hours probably, where TI is six to eight to ten, depending on how long your players are. Even in Eclipse, I don't feel like you really have that time to rebuild if you get hit really, really early with what are the the, the, the neutral forces the ancients yeah if you get hit really hard there it's hard to rebuild in time to have a play in the end game it's possible but it's it's That's, more difficult it's it's more true in eclipse that an early setback can effectively end your chance of winning the game i don't think it's always true and i think a good player can avoid the the situations I think a good player will better evaluate those risks and not take a 50-50 early game right, and right. find a better a better strategy for the first three rounds that doesn't involve taking you know a 55-45 fight against an ancient where if you lose you're set back significantly. Right, but then maybe you that's compare the game that that situation does exist, and for someone playing who is maybe not evaluating things well or is a early player maybe that detracts some from what you might call the quality of the game because those sorts of situations exist i don't know i think i think i read and this wasn't in my notes but i believe i read that the new edition of eclipse both makes the ancients easier to deal with i believe they kind of like reduce in numbers after time so if you leave them alone they like have or something or go away i don't remember the note on that and it actually shortens the game it puts a round timer on the was there there was a round timer in the original right but i think it shortens 
I think it shortens that to seven or six, mm-hmm. which is, I, I can't see that being an improvement on Eclipse, but maybe. I mean, I, I'm sure they put a lot of work into it. In Eclipse, there's kind of a peak around turn seven. So if they made it seven rounds, I could see that working. At least in the games we've played, that tends to like get to a peak in seven, and then like the tension is high for eight, and then there's just like an all-out war slash scramble to collect points in round nine. Yeah, um, maybe maybe pushing that back would allow it to kind of peak and then hit real hard at the right time. So, the in because I don't know, I, I think we should play Eclipse again. It's a fun game. There's some really cool parts to it. Uh, yeah. The man- managing your actions and your income and I don't know, all, all the 4X aspect. I just, I like those parts. I like 4X games. Um, so I enjoy the exploration, the kind of building up your economy. The research is super cool and like designing your ship templates. And then you get to throw them at someone and hope you win. <laughs> and that part, the combat is actually like, the least satisfying part in Eclipse. Um, yeah. Which is funny because if you just looked at it set up on a table, you would never guess that. The interesting part of Eclipse is just all the buildup, like you were saying, the the ship customization and all that. We need we do need to play it again. If only yeah. to annoy... Uh, I can't remember his name. One of our patrons really, really hates Eclipse. And oh, yeah. <laughs> And uh, brings should, it into should conversations. Do like ex- should do an extended like after action report and talk up how much fun you had. Just and send it him. only to him. Yeah. <laughs> just private message him with a with a two thousand word after action report on Eclipse. <laughs> we could uh, get Jeff in for that. He likes Eclipse, although he oh yeah TI. yeah, but it'd be a good well, a good way to change yeah. things up. Anyways, so that's something some other that games. Yeah, go that ahead. Maybe we. I mean, we could talk about other games that we we do like, and I think we'll jump back to those. But why don't we hit one or two that maybe we don't like as much? Well, I wanted to mention, I just remembered, in talking about the build-up phase in Twilight Imperium, games like, I'm thinking of more classic Ameritrash games that I played like Axis and Allies and Risk don't have that because they so strongly incentivize you wiping out other players. I disagree completely. What? Both R- risk like isn't the dominant strategy in risk just building up in Australia and turtling the entire time? If you can take Australia, yeah, but then you want to in risk the key is finishing other players. You don't want to oh, launch a I heavy see. attack and weaken them because that opens someone else to finish them off and get all their cards, which then becomes a massive army boost. The the incentive is to finish people. Because you get their cards. Yeah, you're, you're right. And then in Axis and Allies, like the more territory you take, the more income you get. So you just want to take territory. Although effectively, that's a two-player... It's a two-side game, so it's it's less relevant to this discussion. In Twilight Imperium, there's not the incentive... There, there's not the multiplayer dynamic in Axis and Allies of, oh, that person's getting strong, let's focus on them because they're a threat. Right. Well, and also there's no inherent incentive to wipe someone out in twilight imperium there's no additional incentive like in risk the 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 benefit of taking a system yeah the benefit of taking a system is roughly the same whether or not it belongs to someone or is neutral 
or belongs to someone strong. Like the systems themselves are what's valuable for income. Right. There's no marginal utility of their last system versus their right. you know, 10th system or something. The only exception being home systems, but that's usually a situation where you're trying to kill the home system of the person in the lead to prevent them from scoring points, which is fine. Or, that's, it's balancing or for mechanism. a specific objective, but that's, right. a different, that's a different thing. That's not player elimination. Yeah. Anyways, that's all I wanted to say on that point. What were you going to say, Ren? I was going to say we talked about TI and some of the things we like. Maybe we should jump down to some games that we don't like as much and contrast them. I'm going to jump down to one that you had mentioned here that, as I think about it, we should probably give it another play. But I'm going to lump together Blood Rage and Rising Sun. Okay. Um, Blood Rage we have played a number of times. And there's, I don't know, it's just, it doesn't live up to the hype. At least I think you and I and Matt and Ben like it to varying degrees, but think it doesn't live up to the hype. And then Rising Sun seems to be, from our one play... And this is where I think it might deserve another play just to be like a bigger, longer, messier, more drawn out, less fun game version of it. <laughs> this is tangential, but apparently we played like the longest game of Rising Sun ever. Like I've I've talked to at least two people or seen on Twitter them like, oh, I played my first game of Rising Sun w with five or six players, and it only took, like, two hours with explanation. I'm like, how did you do that? Ours took, what, three and a half hours at least? Yeah, I don't... I... Yeah, it was And it's not like anyone had AP. Like, we're all moving at a decent speed. There was no one person that was just, like, clearly taking way too long for all of their turns. And the game owner was, like, moving things along. Like, okay, we're in this phase now. Like, we weren't rushing, but I felt like we were not in a... I th yeah. Yeah, we're not I was playing, playing around. I think I was playing slow, but I don't know. Anyways, the things that kind of differentiate... Okay, so to compare, Rising Sun and Blood Rage both have the direct conflict, multiplayer dynamic. There's some aspects of attacking the leader and things like that the issue is it's well maybe i shouldn't say issue one of the differences is that it's harder to directly you have less ability to directly attack one person it really depends on both the game situation but also the strategy they're going for in rise in sorry in blood rage the notorious loki strategy is a weird a weird backwards approach where you're trying to lose and you you gain points by losing armies and losing battles so the way to beat it is really to prevent it from being assembled in the first place and in rising sun i don't know the cards well enough to say there was some of that there, there's definitely some combos there where they're very uninteractive and uh, they're not countered by being attacked and they're primarily countered, I think, by someone else noticing what you're trying to do and either hate drafting or taking some of those cards for their strategy. Which is just, it's not as fun as Twilight Imperium, because in Twilight Imperium, you might be limited in position of it being difficult to getting over to the other side of the galaxy or not being worthwhile to get over there to fight someone but you can do it if you really want to whereas like in blood rage you might either just not have soldiers on the map or with the loki strategy like there's just you can't 
prevent them from losing troops because they drafted the zero attack and they're just going to throw one person into any fight and play zero, so they're always going to lose. So I think in that case, the conflict doesn't work as well. The other thing that I think you've especially brought up is they're visually convoluted. You can't look at a thing and visually understand how powerful it is. Whereas in, in particularly, Ethereum, particularly in Rising Sun, I don't think that's a problem Rising. in Blood Rage. Like the leaders are a little bit bigger, the monsters are bigger, but they're also generally they're all more powerful in some way. Yeah. Whereas Rising Sun, the pieces you could have a giant thing that was the biggest piece on the map, and it's visually impressive, but it might have one combat power, whereas a tiny little troop might have three or something, and so you you. You couldn't look at an army and understand how powerful it is. Whereas in, say, Eclipse or Twilight Imperium or even something like Axis and Allies, you can look at something and say, oh, wow, you have 10 tanks there and you know 15 infantry. That's a massive army. I can't beat that. And there's some subtlety in understanding how powerful a specific piece is given their composition with the set of upgrades they have and things like that. But for the most part... It scales roughly linearly, linearly, and also a war sun is the most powerful thing, and it's the biggest thing that sticks out. Whereas some of the monsters in Blood Rage or Rising Sun, they just don't convey that information with their model. It's like a dissonance thing of it might look cool, but it doesn't actually do what it should <laughs> right. in terms of being a big scary monster in, in combat. For a game that purports to be mostly combat although i've heard rising sun described as a uh, negotiation game and i didn't really see that from the one play yeah eric lang the designer said that blood rage has its lineage in in risk and rising sun has its lineage in diplomacy really hmm. yeah that's interesting yeah. though do you consider diplomacy an ameritrash game it's i believe it was the first war game to not have luck not have luck be a factor in combat. So it's kind of an aberration from one of those core themes of Ameritrash games. It's, I believe it was made by an American and it was during that era, but maybe it, it's kind of something that happened and was very significant. And then from what I understand, wasn't super influential on other designs until the Euro game era. Sure. Where we get like, you know, Comet being a, a variation on that uh something with a bit more uncertainty it's not purely deterministic by based on like pre-combat knowledge but it's mostly deterministic yeah diplomacy is an odd one yeah but yeah. i mean back back to rising sun blood rage and i've played neither of these games and just from hearing you guys go back and forth on them for one like you said you've only played rising sun once but for blood rage at least Many of the negatives that you've brought up sound like they could just be fixed with a second better printing, except for what you mentioned about it just being so focused on combat that the rest of the game gets lost. Did I hear that correct? Well, I, I'm kind of paraphrasing there. Well, let me explain. The interesting thing in this discussion, I think, is that both Rising Sun and Blood Rage have a lot more Euro stuff in them than twilight imperium they're both effectively drafting games 
rise or blood rage more so because you have actual drafts and those give you cards which are supremely powerful. It's all about how think, you play those cards. And I think that's by far the most interesting part of the game and mo- most you know best enjoyable most enjoyable part of the game. And the combat Is the draft almost itself? gets in the way. Yeah. The the draft itself and trying to put together a coherent strategy, I think the combat is almost gets in the way of that in a sense. And maybe that's the side of me that likes, that enjoys a good Euro game, whereas this is somewhere in the middle. Maybe the blend in this case doesn't work for me. I think when I was comparing a game like Twilight Imperium or Eclipse and I was looking at Blood Rage and thinking, okay, why do I not like Blood Rage nearly as much? The thing that I came up with is that in Blood Rage, if something bad happens to you, it hits really hard and it's really immediate. So, and this is, this just goes back to the designer, Eric Lang, and just the way he likes games. And I was actually watching in a panel he did at Dice Tower Con, and he talks about how he loves games that have very high highs and very low lows. He wants the full range of emotional experience in his games. And, I mean, I think he's successful at that. That's how they feel. To me, that feels chaotic and frustrating in in things like Blood Rage, where you have cards that are like, aha, that combat didn't count, and you lose all your cards that you played into that combat, and we start over again. More than like the frustration of the Loki strategy, it's the take that cards like that that really annoy me in Blood Rage, because I could draft something that I think is a decent strategy, but... I can't necessarily account for cards like that. Now, comparing that to Twilight Imperium, Twilight Imperium also has take that cards like that. It has sabotage. It has uh, through the darkness of space, whatever that card is that lets you move through people or the one that gives you plus one movement. But I think it's countered by the kind of, like we were talking about before, the long haul, the build up, the if you get hit real hard, the rebuild up, the... After a while, I think it's easier to account for the possibility of those cards being out there, whereas in Blood Rage, everything happens so quickly. And yeah, you can know that, okay, this card, this cancel combat card is in this round of the game, but how do you play around that? You just have to kind of hope it doesn't hit you on your most important combat. In Twilight Imperium, you can be like, okay, there's a good chance no one's played one of this through the Silence of Space cards yet. And we're pretty far through the, the action deck in terms of drawing cards. Someone probably has it. I'll keep a couple of reserve ships so they can't, they have to stop once they get through my main fleet, right? And I can buy some time. There's, there's plays and counterplays more readily available, I feel like, in Twilight Imperium. And then in Eclipse, it doesn't have that at all. It doesn't have the action card system or the, any kind of take that mechanism. Everything's yeah, more, much nothing. more apparent. There's no hidden abilities in Eclipse. Does and I think, and I think oh. if they were in Eclipse, I think it, Eclipse would be far worse. Whereas I think if you took the action cards away from Twilight Imperium, it would be worse. Does Blood Rage have a cancel type card? Because that's something else that Twilight Imperium has. It's just like, no, you don't get to do that card. The closest thing is the one I described. The this combat doesn't count. You lose your cards. No, you do combat. In, no, no, in no. Blood Rage, in Blood Rage, you all play cards into combat simultaneously and reveal. All right, because that that's part of another reason why I think Twilight Imperium's action cards can be so powerful is that 
if you're really looking to do something game changing, you can just hold back one of those cancel cards and and be like, okay, I have like a secondary backup plan here in case someone tries to stop me. Right, and the point I'm saying is that while I remember my first game of Twilight Imperium, I got hit with one of those with the, the this the sabotage card uh, in a very key moment, and it felt kind of bad because I didn't know that card existed. By the, my second game of Twilight Imperium, I was making moves around that card, right? There, there's room to maneuver. In Blood Rage, I have no idea how to maneuver around some of the more powerful attack cards. Like, it's so much harder because everything's you, you so to, quick and just, so direct, and there's no time to recover. Like, once you lose all your units, you only have, like, you, you could almost lose out your whole round, and the game's only three rounds, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And the same thing happened to you in Rising Sun, just because of a bid you were, like, one too low on. Yeah. yeah. I lost a whole battle and, like, two victory points or or may, no more than that. I don't even know. It was significant. Yeah. And so I think it's that, it's hard to phrase what that experience is, but I think with the Eric Lang, Lang games, like, that's something he enjoys that I simply do not, is the kind of really heavy take that big impact moments that are hard to recover from, but give one side a big thrill and the other side a big crushing defeat. Yeah, and th there's two aspects of that. And I think this might be the most interesting thing we hit on. Why does that feel so bad? And I think one side of it is because there's only three rounds in Blood Rage and I think Rising Sun. I believe um, so. I could be yeah. wrong on that. So... It, it's 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 something that comes out of nowhere, and I enjoy a strategy in, in a strategy game knowing that I had a better plan than the other person, or that I not, not even necessarily better plan than them, but I made a good plan and executed it, and I won because I had a good plan. Whereas in the the Blood Rage or Rising Sun, in, the, in that, that sort of scenario where there are these really powerful take that cards and it's only three turns, it feels like, well, I got lucky. <laughs> and it's not as satisfying to win that way. And it also really sucks or feels bad, man, to lose that way. Yeah. At least, I don't know. That's just the way I think is that I'm very an analytical strategy person and I want to, I want to win by being smarter than you or by having a better strategy and maybe you know i get some luck along the way in in small outcomes but not i happen to bid one more on here so instead of losing my entire army i destroy your entire army and i get a victory point and i conquer this province and i get 10 money or something yeah when it and that that sort of it just yeah, I, I, you could take a different perspective of, say, like, it becomes the psychological game of trying to read the other person, but I didn't get that all. It was just kind of like, well, I, I can't really outplay you. I can just account for possibilities and do what I think is the best thing, but it's almost, you know, maybe it's 40% random instead of 100% random or something, but it's still way too much to have a strategy and win because of it. The counter-argument I've seen on both of these games is that once you under once you're familiar with the card set basically you can play around it and i don't deny that like i think once you understand the card set in, in blood rage and can have a good idea of who has which key cards you can play around it a lot better and have more strategy but man the time investment to get to that point and for me like the time investment of just frustration doesn't make it worth it whereas 
the time investment to play around like the key cards in Twilight Imperium is a game of Twilight Imperium, which is super narrative and interesting and fun. In Rising Sun and Blood Rage, I don't feel like there's any kind of coherent narrative or story or interest on that level that can kind of you can kind of hang your coat on until you get to the point where you can play strategically and well. You just get beat down or get lucky or get unlucky and there's so much uncertainty that it's like the learning fatigue is is higher. I think part of it too with a lot of these types of take that type mechanisms even when they're done well is the feels bad comes when you feel like there's an injustice done to you. And then you you take these games that like try to take advantage of that. So we're looking at like your munchkins and your cutthroat caverns and they, they have this mechanic built into them and are, are trying to leverage this mechanic for fun, right? Like munchkin is, is all about playing these cards that pretty much make no sense strategically. I shouldn't say no sense, but are just like, all right, you're going to take this and we're going to laugh about it. And, And it's the same way with cutthroat caverns. But when you're framing your game as a strategic game that you, you want to win with a theme, it, it's not it's not good to do that to your players. Well, what do you guys think about those those two types of games specifically? I mean, I think Munchkin's a good example because a lot of the stuff in Blood Rage kind of feels like Munchkin. The more the more interesting comparison to Munchkin, and I wouldn't argue that there's no strategy in Munchkin or that. You're kind of playing at random. I would argue in Munchkin, every move you make is very easy to make. Like, all the decisions are pretty straightforward. If someone's about to win, you stop them. That's kind of the extent of Munchkin. And if you get something that helps you, you add it to your equipment. I would argue that Munchkin slightly improved would be Cosmic Encounter, which is a very similar game, but adds enough zaniness and some like legit negotiation and... I think better humor uh, I that game. <laughs> to make it a better game. I'm not a huge cosmic encounter fan. I think it's all right. I think, I think it's very variable. I've had some very fun games of cosmic encounter, but I'd say more than half the time they've been kind of a letdown, but it's basically munchkin with ships and more stuff involved. And those games to me are a bit more palatable than something like rising sun because they're, framed in a more silly way right and that's what i was more and arguably they're they're a bit shorter like frankly a better take that game would be much quicker i've heard that uh, there's a carl chuddock game red seven i've heard is kind of one of the best take that games and it's fairly quick although i haven't yet played a chuddock game that i enjoy because he tends to love snowballing i'm getting off track here but folding this all back into the eric lang games i think the the big problem for me is that there's too much time or fat, you could call it, or just other game that takes up time and effort that just gets in the way of the core, which is kind of a take that game. Even if it is, even if it does have drafting, you know, which can mitigate a lot of that. And, and you can eventually get to a point where you have card knowledge enough to mitigate a lot of it. But even I think to a game like Netrunner, like if I played Netrunner against someone who had never played before, they would have no clue. And it would probably feel the same way. It'd be like, hi, you hit my snare, you lose. Like, you have to kind of 
frame games in a particular way or give people the requisite knowledge. My ultimate argument is that I think with Blood Rage and Rising Sun, the cost to gaining that knowledge is so laborious to me that I don't really ever want to pursue it. Another comparison we can make to games that can be kind of take that and frustrating from a different angle is a game like Robinson Crusoe, which I think is interesting because that's a very difficult game, a sometimes frustrating game and a game with a lot of randomness where you can pull a specific card that effectively says you lose. That's mitigated a bit because you've probably seen that card before and know it's going to be coming up. But I think Robinson Crusoe is framed in a way where you're like, okay, we're probably going to lose. It's also co-op, which makes losing feel better because you've all lost together rather than you losing and someone getting really happy about it. (laughs) And because I think the experience of just playing out the game is so much more pleasant. Like the, the discovery experience of seeing what happens as you progress through the narrative of that game is fun. Whereas again, in an Eric Lang game or in Munchkin or in Cosmic Encounter, the progression part isn't as fun to get to the bits of excitement. Would you say that's accurate, Ryan? Yeah, probably. I think that that's probably true. Robinson, I, I think the, the biggest thing is that it's a co-op game. So, yeah, you can lose together because the island was too hard this time and you just couldn't make it. And, and that's it- like... That's okay. It's totally that's a totally fine and still fun outcome for the game. Right. Similar on a competitive game would be like Galaxy Trucker, which is highly random, but it's framed in such a way where you're you can expect that. And the randomness I think is mitigated in some clever ways where you still feel like you're making progression and you feel like you're accomplishing something even if you kind of limp into the station at the end of a round with not a ship yeah and there's two things with that one is that you can look at some of the cards that are coming up you can take time to do that in the building phase and two a better built ship will do better against all threats yes than a poorly built ship even if you if you're like oh man if i had one more gun i would have been so much better but having a better built ship will just be better. <laughs> I don't know how to say other than that. Like you'll score more points. You'll take less damage. You'll yeah. handle more threats. And it takes like one game to know, Oh, I don't want exposed pipes. I want guns as many guns as I can pointing in most directions. I want some amount of batteries. And then you start making better ships and you do better. <laughs> yeah. But, but you, and, and this is a side note, but I want to, I want to, I want to emphasize what you just said there, just for the people in the back who hate Galaxy <laughs> Trucker and say that it's all randomness. I will play you in Galaxy Trucker, and I will almost certainly beat you. Like there's a lot of ro- luck and randomness in Galaxy Trucker. A better ship will win, and you can easily learn to build better ships. The end. <laughs> It's not all luck. Sorry. I, I heard some, I can't remember who it was, someone from the Dice Tower. Was, I think there are multiple people from the Dice Tower who hate that game because they think it's entirely luck. And I'm like, no, well, it's okay. just not it's true. It's not. But, but also, it's framed as this like zany, weird, crazy Vlada experience where the game is just trying to destroy you and you're trying to survive the game. Whereas something like Rising Sun, it's like, it's supposed to be a strategy slash diplomacy slash combat game or somewhere in there. And if you lose, someone else 
won more so than the game crushed you this time. And That's interesting because Galaxy just, Trucker, it's a competitive game, but it has that co-op feel because everything's coming from the game. All the opposition. Yeah, you're not directly competing against other players. You're competing against them to survive the game the best. Yeah, which is interesting. I guess it makes it not particularly Ameritrash. That's a lot of Euro stuff, which makes sense because it's a European designer. But yeah. it still has enough luck that I would call it kind of Ameritrashy. That's interesting. There's a lot of points. I don't know what to conclude based on that long discussion starting with <laughs> Blood Rage. But I think if you, for the people listening, we might have sounded like we concluded some interesting things. Do we want to move on to Eldritch Horror now? Oh, boy. Because I'm really curious. Bubba, you love this game, right? Is that accurate? Uh, yes. I do like this, very, this game very much. I've played it twice, I think. I've played Arkham once, and I've played Eldritch twice. I don't understand it. It feels like it is the most luck-based thing I've played in a very... Like, ever. Like everything comes down to a card draw and or dice rolling is is it that i have a knowledge deficit like in blood rage or rising sun that i just don't understand that there is mitigation strategies so i would say that so let's back up to arkham or first if if we can because you've played arkham before right i don't remember much oh okay it was it was like sophomore year in college it was a long time ago so I, I do not like Arkham Horror very much at all. And the main reason for that is I felt it that it felt solvable almost because there was less randomness in what you could get at specific locations. So in Arkham Horror, you, you run around this town, moving your piece around, you stop in locations, you, you draw cards, sometimes the cards give you stuff or sometimes they're bad. But in Arkham, these cards that did give you stuff, if it was a good card, they were just like locations that were strictly better than others. So a lot of the games resorted to people parking in one location, gearing up, and then going to fight monsters. And to me, that was boring. So when I got... The other thing I found with Arkham was that there was just like... You kind of said this is... There's just like the correct play is... You get some stuff, you close gates, and you seal the gate, and you win the game if you do that at enough times before the timer runs out. Whereas, well, go ahead. Yeah, so so I when I got Eldritch Horror, it, it wasn't like that at all. Mainly because, one, the win condition varied so frequently. And two, because the board was bigger for one, and because you had to go places for two, just the, the game required you to go other places it forced you to experience the entire game, which led to more of a storytelling experience than anything. I won't deny it. This game is very, very luck-based. What with all the checks you have to roll and uh, all the cards you have to draw. But I'm thinking that you're looking for a way to solve it. And really the only way to solve it is at the start of each game, you analyze what you have to do to win. And you can analyze your character. There is a few optimal ways to play different characters in the game. But other than that, you kind of just have to experience the story. And that's really what it is. It's more of a story-driven game than anything. I think my main problem with it, and I, while you were talking, in, I was listening, but I was thinking that 
why do I like Eldritch, or why do I not like Eldritch Horror, but I do like Robinson Crusoe, which also has tons of dice and cards? The experience to me that I've had with Eldritch Horror is that every decision I make is either blindingly obvious or feels like a complete toss-up. It's like, okay, I need to go here and do this thing because if we don't, we're probably going to lose really quick. Or, yeah, you can go pretty much wherever you want to try to gear up. And I know there's certain locations where it's like, okay, certain types of gear appear here and maybe your character works better there. But then it's like, okay, I guess that's the obvious choice when there's no pressing need. Whereas in Robinson Crusoe, like, you know a whole list of things that you should be doing and the order in which you do them and the way in which you do them is all probabilistic based. And I think the problem for me with Eldritch Horror is I, I just don't know those probabilities and so I never felt like any of my decisions had any meaning. No. So like, and this is ba- back to um, exactly what you said, actually. I'll respond, respond exactly to what you said. You said that you either feel like decisions are laid out for you and they're painstakingly obvious or that you're just doing a 50-50, essentially, a toss-up decision. And I would actually tend to agree with you and – I think why Eldritch shines, at least for me, is that it really, really tries to, and I think for the most part succeeds, in minimizing those painfully obvious moves and makes it so that almost every move that you take in Eldritch is kind of just like a, hmm, I wonder what's going to happen here. And if you frame your play with that in mind and like throwing probabilities out the window... I, I relish in those decisions. And it, I know you're talking to Bubba, uh, one of the, the, the most strategic minds you know. But for some reason, I just love... Calm that. down love- there. <laughs> <laughs> for some reason, I just love the total toss-up and like the story behind it. Yeah, I never bought into the story. Maybe that's the problem then. I... I never felt like there was a coherent story going on in Eldritch, whereas in Crusoe, I felt like there's there's always a coherent story going on. I think the other thing is Eldritch, to me at least, is so hard that when you do succeed, it just feels so darn good. When I played Spirit Island last month, it almost gave me that same feel as Spirit Island. Not, not that we have to go talk about Spirit Island for the uh, 10th podcast in a row or whatever it is well also as we all know spirit island is a euro game so it doesn't even go here true (laughs) so i enjoy eldritch i don't know if i would call it i don't know if i think it's a good game but i enjoy it as kind of like you talked about baba as adventure time of like we're going on this adventure together and i don't really read or you know, know much of anything about the Lovecraftian mythos or Cthulhu or anything like that. I just like, there's a big monster. We're going on an adventure. We're going to get some stuff and fight some baddies and it'll be a, you know, it'll be a good time and lots of random stuff will happen. And when I just play it as that, I have fun. I will say the individual turns are pretty bland and more so in Arkham, it feels kind of gamey sometimes of like, well, I'm going to go do this thing for a totally unrelated reason. And it, it's almost like how you enjoy with um, Near and Far. 
you have a better time playing near and far when you just go on explorations and see what happens. And I think in that sense, Eldritch Horror, that's when Eldritch Horror shines the most. When you're just, like, you try to win, of course, and you try to make a good decision of, like, if I have these two and one is clearly better, then I'll take that one. But if you approach it as Adventure Time, it's it's just more fun as opposed to a strategy co-op game. Well, I feel justified in my dislike of the game. <laughs> I well, will play it. You, I will play it again. That, you would not. You would not like Mansions of Madness then. <laughs> oh, really? I had a blast playing Mansions, but I th- it's very much the same way of very much story driven and things are happening and you roll dice and you see if you succeed. Although I've only played two of the many scenarios. My my only complaint about mansions, and I'll make this really fast, is I wish the puzzles were harder. They have oh yeah, they're absolutely easy. Yeah. Next time you're here, Bubba, we gotta we should stream Eldritch Horror, and that'll be we'll see if a nice fun streaming setup and your enthusiasm and see see if I can get to appreciate this game. If not, I'm just gonna give it a bad review. (laughs) 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 Sorry. I don't get it. I don't get it. Anyways, I think that's our podcast for today. Thanks for listening, everybody. Don't forget to check out thethoughtfulgamer.com. Check me out on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast. And if you want to watch our podcasts live and get them ahead of time, raw and unedited, go to patreon.com slash thethoughtfulgamer. We are $8 a month away from unlocking giveaways. We're so close, people. We're so very, very close. Any help is appreciated. But if we can pass those additional $8 to get to $100 a month, I will immediately do a giveaway, and then we will continue doing them every quarter from games that I hand select. I already have my list of my favorite games that I've played this previous quarter, and And, I'm just waiting. And don't worry, none of them will be in that closet behind them. (laughs) (laughs) No one knows, only the people watching know the closet behind me. Uh, well, you can run down the list behind you, then. What do we got Real behind fast. me? Yeah, turn around. Real I, fast. My, my cord is holding me in. We've got <laughs> Balderdash, which I legit think is a good game. Axis and Allies. I think only Balderdash is there because we have multiple copies. Some mirror game, I don't remember. Small World. And Pandemic Legacy, which we finished. It was very good, but has no use after you finish it. There you go. None of those well, games. Not, you will not get our stickered finished version of Pandemic Legacy Season 1. <laughs> oh, that'd be rude. That'd be the ultimate Although, troll maybe, move. Maybe that's like a collector item or something when you get to many, when you become famous. Some people frame theirs. They had so really? much fun, they frame their boards, yeah. Which is like, if you have a board gaming friend over, it's like, don't look at that! <laughs> Spoilers! <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right, I think that's everything. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will talk to you all again soon. Goodbye. Peace out.